0: you believe, you guys, we are on the sixth episode of Purpose Driven Law. Welcome back uh, to the show, everybody. If you are new here, my name is Amy Berry. I am your host here at Purpose Driven Law. And just a refresher, uh, Purpose Driven Law is really a platform where it is designed to share the stories of leaders in the legal industry who really pursue their purpose through their practice. Remember, you can find this podcast on the Purpose Driven Law YouTube channel, iTunes, Spotify, and on Google Podcasts. Don't forget to share and subscribe to the episode. All right. So my next, next guest is Jonathan Barlow. He was born in Flint, Michigan, and raised on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Barlow graduated from St. Martin High School and attended Spring Hill College in Mobile, Alabama, where he played basketball and finished with a dual political science and philosophy degree. Barlow then attended Mississippi College School of Law in law school. Barlow worked as a guardian ad Litton and sat second chair on two murder trials. Barlow also worked as a Hines County public defender before returning to the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Upon his return, Barlow practiced as a chancery court attorney, criminal defense attorney, and immigration attorney. But behind all of this professional experience and success, Jonathan Barlow's testimony and, profession, and personal story to power will leave you in awe. It's full of grit, fight, and perseverance. Truly a testimony on just how great the power of God is. And when you surrender, the only thing that you see is success. Jonathan, welcome to Purpose Driven Law. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for the... Uh... Overzealous introduction, but I really appreciate it. it. Sounds a lot better than it really is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you deserve all of the all of the zealous introductions, my friend. Um, well, how about we uh, kick off this chat by telling us a little bit about yourself, um, what your what your childhood was like, and how that kind of shaped you into the man that you are today.
1: Absolutely. So, um, you know, we talked about a little a little bit of this in New Orleans when we first met, which I like to share my story. I think it's unique, obviously. Um, I was born in Flint, like my biography reads. Um, I had a young mother. Uh, she got pregnant at, at 13, um, moves away from from Stone County, Mississippi, down in Wiggins, uh, really in the middle of nowhere and goes up to Flint. Uh, I think I was actually born in the Wayne County hospital, which is Detroit, but you know, Flint's a, a suburb of Detroit. And so, um, long story short, I just lived a lot of life in a, in a very early age. My mom gets pregnant. She moves away. She hits Detroit area right around the time that, that drugs really hit the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and she started taking the drugs, uh, for a long time. It was something you struggle to understand. Uh, some of the things she did, you you can't. It's not so much fathom, but it's just it's hard to to believe there's some higher power when people do some of the things that they do. And so I was a victim of child abuse, uh, pretty severe child abuse. The the child psychologists and the child uh, physicians, the pediatric care physicians that testified in my trial, kind of just said we don't know why he's alive, uh, we don't know why he made it. We don't really know anything other than we had a really severely abused child that we had to do surgery on. Um, she had, she committed some, uh, I think we'd label atrocities, but it took me a long time to come to terms with realizing she was a kid raising a kid. Um, I think once I had a child that that made more sense. Um, so ultimately in Mississippi is where she got in some really big felony trouble. And uh, she abused me. I was I was brought to the hospital with multiple skull fractures. Um, I think I had some, some brain swelling, obviously, um, my small intestine was ruptured and sepsis had set in into my body. So they cut out about two feet of my small intestine, pumped all the sepsis out, uh, performed some surgery, sewed me back up. I think I became a ward of the state for a little while. Um, my parents that raised me, my parents, you know, they, they ultimately adopted me, but, um, my mother couldn't have children, and so they had—they had been part of this program that Mississippi used to have, where um, I don't know it was like a guardian angel program or something. They didn't keep kids overnight; they would have them during the day on the weekends. They take them to McDonald's. My dad would go buy them all kind of toys and clothes, and you know, unfortunately, they had to bring them back to the the shelter or the home at the time that they were done. But it was something that was really important to them, and. As I understand the story, my dad gets a call one day and they, you know, they tell him, "Hey, we've got a kid that that needs 24-hour care. We're we're not in a position to be able to take care of him. Can you all help?" And I think it started out to be something that was going to be uh maybe short-term. My mom was incarcerated at this point. Um I think part of the court order as I remember, my my mother that raised me would have to bring me to jail to see her. And um you know, when they realized that 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 parent-child relationship wasn't really there, I think that's when they shifted focus to we want to ultimately adopt them. Um, And so, and and we can talk about it later, nature and nurture are two things that have always been compelling to me because by nature, I should probably be some kind of uh, drug using delinquent, I guess we'd say. Uh, but I got nurture from a family and and it was a whole family unit from my grandfather down on my dad's side and my grandmother down on my mom's side that, that helped me get where I am. I mean, it was hard. I uh, I had a, you know, I had severe emotional issues, not so much. Um, I never let me impact my goals moving forward, but it was at times there were things I just, I couldn't deal with. And so when people would, would, When you would feel sadness, I would go into like um, depression. If you had anger, I would just black out. So it was, it's, I think official name is heightened emotional response syndrome. Mm -hmm. And so I think the science is pretty clear. Severely traumatically abused children that uh, don't have that familial relationship with their mother, who's the first being you come into contact with. They have issues i mean if you put me on a piece of paper i should be a statistic on another netflix documentary but i got nurtured i got love and that that changes it
0: yeah how old were you when you got integrated into this other family where you're you're with your mom and dad
1: i think i went into their care and custody around somewhere in the 14 to 16 month range um it's ultimately the time where the state took me. I had bounced in and out of state custody as my mom continued to get in trouble. But mm-hmm. that's when my, my parents that raised me ultimately got me for long term. I think the adoption wasn't legally done until twenty twenty one months, somewhere in that range. So very young. Um, mm-hmm. I always knew I was adopted. I could look at my family photo and all the men are 6'1", barrel chested, olive skin, dark hair. I didn't get any of those qualities. So uh, it was never really hard. And my parents never hid it from me. They told me, Hey, you're adopted. You know, we love you all the same, but you're adopted. Um, And as a kid, I think kids struggle with understanding life because obviously they haven't lived any life. And so you wonder, well, did someone not love me? Why, why do I have to be with somebody that's not actually my biological parent? And that, that was hard to question your parent on that, right? It, it'd be like my son coming to me. I adopted him and him saying, well, you know, why doesn't my mom love me? How, how do you answer that question? And um, they met it head on all the time, which I, I know now was hard. I mm-hmm. learned about everything a little too young. My grandfather told me, I don't know. My mom swears I was 15. I remember things pretty good. I was about 13, but mm-hmm. that's when I learned about why I was adopted. And at that age, whether 13, 15, 18, you've you've lived such a short span of your life that you you can either spiral or not. Um, And so some of the late nights you start to think about those things, like if if God's there and if there's this higher deity watching over me, why am I the one going through this stuff? Mm -hmm. That's a hard contemplation for a kid.
2: Totally, There's no
1: good answer.
0: Did you find yourself asking God why? A lot when you were growing up?
1: Um, yeah, even from the perspective of, of being adopted, you know, your inclination as a kid is to think, why didn't my mom love me? Mm-hmm. Um, when, when I learned about myself, that's when you really start to ask, like, all right, if there's this higher being that's concerned with the, the humanity of people and making sure people live their best life, why do some of us go through these types of things? Mm-hmm. And so it definitely became something I'd say for a while I became obsessed with, um, even early in my legal career, I wanted to see the case file.
2: Mm-hmm. And there
1: was a, the first attorney I ever worked for was a guy named Fred Lusk. And, and Fred was intimately involved in my case. And there's so many players now that I know in practice either with before or, or have some relationship with that they probably don't even remember that they were involved with in my case. I'm sure they do. Um, a different name, different life. And and so I went to Fred one time and I'd pulled every string I could think to pull it saying, Hey man, I want to see my file. And Fred said, Son, you might think you're strong enough, but sometimes you open Pandora's box and you can't you can't undo it. And Fred, I mean, he was a defense attorney through and through. He'd seen every bad guy you could ever, ever encounter in life. But when Fred said no, leave it alone, I figured, well, I might ought to leave it alone. Um, so there's it's almost like a whole. You know, there's a hole in my story that I wanted answers to. And I don't know why I wanted answers to it. It wasn't for pity. Um, my dad did a great job of saying, that's just a story. I've got some sto- uh, some scars on my body that show the story. And I've got some moments in life that are part of the story, but it's just a story. And when I came to terms with that, it became easier to talk about it, I think.
2: Mm,
0: yeah. Wow. I'm just like picturing this a little boy, you know, 13 years old, just getting overloaded with all of this information and just like, wow. Talk about having to grow up quick and go on a different path than so many other kids growing up had to go on. Like you, you've lived a lifetime compared to other people just at 13 14 years old um what how would you say how would how would you describe what was kind of like the the most what do i put this as how do you how did you just get through that i'm just trying to put my thoughts together like how does this 13 14 year old boy just now start to grasp with reality and just start to move forward from that do you have a a moment that's ingrained in you
1: no no it wasn't a moment it was a long long hard thing it was um nurture I think that's the word that if there's a theme of life for me it's nurture Mm. um if I don't wind up where I am, I'm either dead or in jail. I know a lot of people say that. I can say that with a straight face on a in a court of law or in a in a church and and believe it. Um, I was in counseling from a young age. Um, I did counseling all the way through college. probably mm-hmm. could continue it now, but you know, I often joke with my wife when you've done counseling for twenty twenty five years you've heard everything from just five, ten different people. They're going to say some variants of the same thing. Yes. I think the moment it became easier to deal with was when I understood that no matter what couch I sit on, they're going to tell me something I already know. Yeah. Uh, Cause I live inside of my own skin. Um, yeah. not to go down a tangent, but like social media, I've been off of social media for a while. I mm-hmm. think that we use that as filler time because people struggle with being alone, being people. And so yeah. we have to fill every single moment with I matter and somebody cares about me and, mm-hmm. and, I'm relevant to at least one person to be able to deal with being a human. It's hard to be a human. And so when I came to terms with the fact that it's going to be hard, you're not going to hear anything you haven't heard already. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I had well-educated parents that, you know, they pushed me all the way. Um, My dad, especially, I mean, he was, he was a tough dude, but he had Mm -hmm. lived arguably a harder life than I had. And he had perspective that maybe some other person wouldn't have. again, it just, I'm sure that it's not completely random. I wound up in a family unit that could handle a situation and, Mm
2: -hmm. and it was
1: on both sides of the family, but I would think from 13 to 18 or 15 to 18, and, and as an aside, I can pinpoint the day I learned. I was driving, well, I was riding with my grandfather to go fishing in Monroe, Louisiana, we had just eaten a biscuit on top of the overpass in whatever city we were in. And he leans over and says, you know, you're adopted, right? Yeah, I know that said, you know why? No. And then he just tells me the whole story. So, uh, I don't think my parents were exceptionally, uh, thrilled with him doing that, but that was my grandpa and and we were close. And I think he wanted to be the person that broke that news to me for whatever reason. Um, but, uh, 13 to 18 was hard 13 to 21 was hard. I had a lot of anger and resentment and you know I found my case it's a published case on Justia and all those other search databases. I've carried it in my briefcase at times I've carried it in my book bag at times I've reread it reread it sometimes I've broken down sometimes I've been devoid of emotion when I read it Mm -hmm. you know it's just like me and you reading a fiction novel but Mm -hmm. it's my fiction novel you know.
2: Mm-hmm. as far as I'm
1: concerned it is a fiction now, I don't remember it uh, there's implications to it I can assure you but I don't remember it
0: yeah how did when did God come in the picture for you like tell me tell me about how you've used your your faith or this thing called higher power to help you navigate through this
1: well you know my mom and dad one was raised roman catholic the other was raised uh fire and brimstone baptist and mm-hmm. my, my grandmother my mom's mom she was the catholic my grandfather was the baptist and and he was a pastor in a church as i remember and there are times where god wasn't there in my mind
2: there mm-hmm. were just
1: times where i couldn't fathom that there's this higher deity i couldn't even believe in the ethos and you've heard me talk about that um because I was just bitter, right? I I was just bitter about why are my circumstances this as compared to the other person's. My grandma and my grandpa are both deceased now. And, And one thing I always ask them, I thought about this yesterday. I used to ask them like, have you always been this religious? And I wish I had asked the question a little differently because of course an 84 and a 94 year old are gonna say, oh yeah, I've always been you know, I've always been so close to God and maybe they were because when they lived, it was a different thing. Um, religion, I don't want to say it was forced down your throat, but everybody went to church. Everybody, you were in such desperate times that you needed something higher. Um, there's a direct correlation between religiosity and education. And I wish what I had asked them was how long did it take to develop stability? Because I know they had dark times in their life, too, where they probably put God aside or they put the ethos aside and they might would have both told me I was always this staunch. But uh, I don't believe that. I think we all have a growth period. When my grandma died, one of the best takeaways from that that sermon from the preacher was he had heard a quote from her. She said, let me not butcher it. I can endure anything because I believe in God for everything and so our preacher her preacher asked you know where did you hear that and she said well I made that up and I don't know if she did or not but he's a theologian and he hadn't seen it anywhere else in the Bible I don't believe based on what he said and so I think probably in my mid-20s I started to come to terms with like it is what it is that's just a part of your story. Everybody's got some negative or hard part of their story. Yours just started a little bit earlier, but you lived. Um, the child, one of the child physicians that testified in the trial said, like, the, the abuse I endured would be the equivalent of being some veteran at war, some, some combat uh, military officer in war. And his, his platoon leaves him, he becomes a bandit. And so my brain just developed in a way where I had to grow up really fast.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, I think I think it made me a rational, logical person. And so the easy escapist argument is always I can't point to this tangible thing. And so when I came to terms with the thought, you're here when a lot of other kids die, there's got to be a reason. And so that's what I've tried to kind of hang my hat on the last few years is there's got to be some reason
0: oh my gosh there totally is like God doesn't make anybody by mistake he didn't bring you into the position that you are or into the family or to the mother that you had you know by mistake we can't justify evil we can't you know give an answer to why bad things happen to good people but you know God uses everything for the greater good of those who love him. Like your story is incredible. And the more that you share it, the more lives you touch and the more people that you give hope to like children who are going through, you know, just atrocities in even these juvenile detention centers or schools, or, you know, even within their own families, like Stories like yours give hope to those kids and even adults too that endured that kind of uh, abuse and suffering. Like the more that we step into our personal story and our pain, and we realize that there is a purpose why we endured all of these things, and that is to give others a, a sense of hope and a light at the end of the tunnel. Like that's why you're here. And you know, just to, just to be able to share and, and be a beacon, like, you know, we can't make sense of it all of why, of when it happened, but I, I assure you, and I promise you that in the long run, like your story is just going to be, it, it, it's just going to be such a blessing to other people. um, And, you know, I, that's all that we can, you know, lean into we can't we can try and seek answers but you know just really realizing that you totally are just a blessing just for your story and who you are and who you've become today like I you know I'm I'm just really honored to be able to hear your story and to be able to have this conversation with you um so
1: well and there'll be a lot of people you know I've Some of my close friends know my story. Some of them don't. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I've told rooms of people and sometimes I've told nobody, but, um, you know, if it helps one person, then that's what it was worth to me. Um, Yeah. uh, Kids go through stuff and kids are resilient and they're tough, but they can't do it without nurture. They just can't.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, thank you for sharing all of that from the bottom of my heart. I really do appreciate that. Um, from all of your experiences that you've had and all of the trials that you've gone through kind of how did that develop what your character is today and the values that you have in your life
1: um characteristically it just made me a i think a, rel- a relentless kind of person um
0: which attorneys need to be <laughs>
1: You do. You have to it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. Uh, mm-hmm. don't wield your sword all the time. You don't have to. Some people practice that way. I've always thought if you're a really good attorney in a deposition, I can be setting you up to say something I need you to say while smiling and getting along with you. I've done mm-hmm. depositions that have literally cost people their business. I'm not proud of that, but sometimes it happens. And you know, we're leaving the deposition and the, the people are talking about how much they like speaking with me. It's mm-hmm. like you just messed up everything and you don't even realize it because you're so, I guess, just enjoying conversation. Um, but mm-hmm. I think ultimately it made me resilient. If I had to say one word, it'd be resilient. And, and I have an ultimate belief in me. Um, you know, I'm not a big guy, but if you put me in shack in a, in an elevator, I think I'm coming off that elevator. If I got to, um, I'm a fighter. I mean, you gotta be, you know, I started fighting from the moment my eyes were open. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's been probably the biggest characteristic development. My father and mother, really my dad, I think as I look back now, I realize it was occupied time. They, they did stuff they didn't have to do like all parents, but, um, we had a farm and we had miniature animals for the most part, like 40 horses, 40 goats, llamas, chickens, all. and I had to work that farm all the time. And sometimes on Saturday, when my friends were going to the beach at 5 a.m., I was getting up with my dad working. And during the summertime, when friends were going to do whatever, I was with my dad working and Mm -hmm. and he was tough. I mean, he was just a tough dude. Love him to death. Uh, Try to cook for him a couple of times a week and bring him dinner. But he never gave me an an ounce of an excuse. And I hated it at the time. I'm doing the same thing to my son now and he's only four. So Mm -hmm. I realize it's value now, you know. Um, but again, my mom was more of the hands-on loving one. I think my dad wasn't, but that wasn't his skill. Just like me and my law partner have skills. My mom was really skilled at being able to give you compassion and love and, um, forgiveness. My dad was the one that told you what you had to hear, not what you wanted to hear. I would have almost wished he'd spank me over having lectures to me, but he never did. He just lectured <laughs> me. Uh, but they would get long winded.
0: that's a different kind of love, right? Like love in different forms. And look, I, I hear you on that one. I can share that. My dad never laid a hand on me, but holy, did he give lectures and yeah, I can share with you on that. Um, so how, what would you define your purpose as in life? I know that we kind of like touched on it or people can kind of put it together, but how would you answer that question?
1: Um, I think it's a two part answer. One is like your introverted purpose in life. And I think that probably needs to be a common theme for everybody. Just be a better human. That's a developmental thing and it's going to take you a long time and you're going to mess up literally every single day if you really break it down. But at the end of life, I want to say I'm a, whenever that comes, right. There's no promise. I'll live to be 85. Um, Marshall says I'll outlive everybody because I'm filled with so much vinegar, but um, you know, I think, I think I just wanted to close my eyes and say I was the best person I could be as I developed um, from an outward perspective, giving back to the world. I think my ultimate purpose is probably to give back to the world and you know, I'm, I'm on a really hard push and a grind partly for building this brand or this thing that I want. And with that, hopefully comes some money. I want to put that money to people. You know, I don't want money to to put into my house and buy bigger trucks and buy bigger boats and go on more lavish things. Will I? Maybe. But no. I also want to give back to kids and help kids develop parks in their local communities or, buy books or Christmas gifts, whatever it is that can help some kid that doesn't have it. uh, Because that one moment might stick in that kid's life and help change them. Mm -hmm. You know, our high school basketball coach growing up, he did a program, he and I, I think came up with it. We would pick out a few families across the schools uh, from like kindergarten up to 12th grade that were just not doing well. And we'd go and we'd do a fundraiser and get some money and, and buy them Christmas gifts. And Sometimes we nominated the people on our team because we knew they were in that situation. Um, I've sat with the elderly uh, in those old folks homes, we'll call them, where they don't really have family. Mm -hmm. And I had a scholarship at Spring Hill where I had to do community service, taught poetry to the children. But I really enjoyed sitting with the elderly at the old folks home and just listening to their stories of what they'd seen. Mm I think that's ultimately what I want to do as a, as a human outside of my own skin is just help people. Mm -hmm. However, that has to come up, you know, whether it's a moment in a day or, or hopefully molding somebody in some way, or giving somebody a dollar that helps them turn their day around, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How do you pour that back into uh, your practice at your firm? How do you, do you create company culture that surrounds those kinds of values or how do you implement that?
1: I work harder than anybody I know. That's not to say there's not a lot of hard attorneys. There are, and there's some that work probably just as hard or harder. I don't, you know, I can't name a list of those people, but they're there. <laughs> but my focus in my firm is I want to do I want to do the same thing I would want somebody to do for my mother. And sometimes that's tough love. I'm never an attorney that's going to tell you what you want to hear. Don't really care if you like me or not. That's not my role. And I tell all my clients, I'm the conduit of your story. And so if you go against my legal advice, I'm not going to be mad at you. But when an electrician says, don't stick a fork in a socket and you do, you get shocked. And our shock looks a different way, but... You know, I do a one hour intake on all my files. I call all my clients off my personal cell. Every time my system moves across whatever discipline of law we're in, I'm the one that calls them and tells them. I don't use a paralegal or use a legal admin. I call and tell them because when you go to the doctor, you love the nurse practitioner, but you want to talk to the doctor. Mm -hmm. And so I, I try to think of every client, even my difficult ones. And there's a few I would want this this pinnacle of the law or pinnacle of medicine or whoever it is, I'd want them to do the same thing with my mom. And I've hashed it out with some of my clients and had hard conversations with a lot of them. But I think ultimately at the end, they trust me because I've not left them in the blind. I I try to fill the bridge, the gap and give them the why to everything I'm doing. And that takes a little bit more time and -hmm. it's a little bit more stressful on me. And sometimes I have to do that four or five times with one person. But at some point, it's going to click, and it's always a cool thing when it clicks because you see, you see them develop into an understanding, and and I guess it's ultimately teaching people.
0: Mm. Through the- yeah, hundred percent, and yeah, when people you know are going through those kinds of situations where they need to contact an attorney, this world is so unknown to them, right? And you know, being able to dumb it down in lamest terms and paint the picture out and the steps of why you're doing X, why you're doing Y. I think it just makes that time and that experience a lot, a lot better because they can, you know, put the pieces together. Um, do you share your story a lot with your clients or no?
1: Um, when it's applicable. Yeah. For example, I've had clients from certain parts of the state that are from hard, you know, they're from hard parts and I look a certain way. Obviously, when I'm an attorney, I'm dressed a certain way. I don't talk the same way to all my clients. I changed, you know, my Marshall calls me a chameleon. I can change my skin because I've lived a lot of life. I've done yeah. a lot of things that have put me in communication with people across literally the whole world. Yeah. And so, um Sometimes I will say, look, it's clear to me, you don't think that I understand your life. Let me tell you a little bit about mine. And mm-hmm. ultimately, those people are able to come to, to listen to me quicker than anybody because they see it might not look the same, but you're from the same struggle I came from. He just got there or she just got stuck there longer than I did. That's mm-hmm. our only difference. I was able to get out and I had no, no control over that whatsoever. You mm-hmm. know, that's why opportunity is a flip of a coin.
0: Mm, totally yeah um do you still do you have any communications with your mom at all
1: no so I know it's shocking I was played basketball and got a lot of coverage in high school and and a little bit in college but definitely in high school local community kid and she um she reached out through a relative at one point then um didn't talk to her at all kind of my parents shut that down hell i was still an 18 year old kid and then when i was in law school pretty close to graduation no either when i was at the end of law school or the end of undergrad i i don't really remember i want to say the end of law school she reached out again and um kind of talked to her and the story was immediately you know the state wronged me they took me they took you from me none of this is true And I didn't press any of these issues, right? I didn't raise it. I just kind of talked like nothing. And I remember having a conversation with my mom and dad and, you know, they got kind of mad, not at me, but just at the circumstance. And I said, look, it would take tremendous power to sit across from your child and say, I did all these things. I'm sorry. Um, You know, I was messed up too. And much like some of our criminal defendants, sometimes you have to develop a story in your head to deal with the demon. Yeah. Um, that's something I try to relate to all my clients is there's a demon of your decision. And mm-hmm. so sometimes we can't, we just can't process that as a human. And so we, we've a story to cover it. And mm-hmm. so she did that and, and she had to, and I understand it. Do I agree with it? I don't know. I didn't live her life. Yeah. Uh, but I know it would take a tremendously powerful person to stand in front of their child and say that. Yeah, I did this and I'm sorry for it, but this is what happened. Hell, we got a lot of stuff we do in life that we can't go and tell the truth about, you know.
0: Yeah. And like, you know, I don't know what kind of drugs were at play, but you know, that that puts you in a different state and can alter your brain in a totally different way, and when you tell yourself a lie enough times, you believe it. You believe it, right? you have to uh, yeah and yeah that's crazy what would you say your like what would you say your faith is today and how do you how do you implement that in your day-to-day personally and within your practice
1: um well in a way I've probably never been good at you know I'm a Catholic I'm not a good one Marshall will tell you I try to I try to pray for every day.
0: Catholic
1: for yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I, I do try to pray every day. And um, you know, I I either start my day or end my day with a prayer. I you know, you and I had the conversation where I don't think I have to go sit in a box or sit in a pew to have a relationship with God. I just I've never wow. I studied war, a lot. And so yeah. it, it just always bothered me. Every time I looked at another war story, I saw another flag of crusadement right there with it um yeah just I didn't appreciate that part of religion I just truly didn't and so I've become an isolationist with with God and have my own talks and and I think I have a distinction between God and the ethos I think they work hand in hand
2: but Mm -hmm. the ethos
1: is what we live day to day that we can point to where this moment happens because of that moment where you know God's just the influential party over that it's gotta come out in some tangible form. So it does through the ethos, but that's the higher deity at play. And and like I told you in New Orleans, um, no matter what you believe in, I don't care. You know, mm-hmm. believe in whatever thing we're all believing in something at the end of the day. And so if Shiva's your God or or Jah or um, Allah, you know, or
2: to me there's God. no
1: one. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Just believe in something. Yeah. I think the implementation in my practice truly is probably from Buddhism more than anything. I try to be patient with people. I, I try to be as patient with anybody as I can because I'm familiar with a set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. If I showed up to their job and now I had to do their job, I would get frazzled pretty quickly because everybody gets frazzled when they don't know what the hell they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so I try to, that's why I try to take that time with the why and say, okay, clearly you're not understanding something or clearly this isn't going well. What is it you're missing? So I think that's my big implementation. And, and so sometimes, you know, I learned from our old law partner at the firm we were at, sometimes you bring God into the story, especially with certain types of clients that you know they're, they're heavily religious. Um, they, they want something in retaliation to something. Mm. And so we developed the story of, well, we didn't develop it, we use it. You're asking this higher being that's a omnipotent and good being to come down and give you something solely to retaliate for that. That's not going to happen. That's not how God works. No. And so that has been I don't use it all the time. I probably use it five to 10 times a year. But when it's an applicable thing, it's a it's a it's a good euphemism for him to understand this is where we are. Um, hmm. One time, one thing I absolutely do is I tell all my clients, God ain't going to sweep into that courtroom for you. Mm
2: -hmm. I've been in a
1: lot of trials and God's never popped up and had some piece of evidence for me. At the (laughs) point we're there, we're there. And so that helps people to rationalize that, you know, this imagery I have in my head of how trial is going to go might not really go that way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And,
1: you know, I guess that's reverse engineering, but it works.
0: Hey, reverse engineering is, it, it works in a lot of situations. That's right. <laughs> um, the last couple of questions. Who would you say was the most influential person in your life and has helped
2: you get where you are today? Um,
1: I think my parents definitely are... are the ones I can point to for helping me be here, but it's an assortment of people. You know, uh, my dad taught me how to work hard and to just keep right foot in front of the left. Um, my mom taught me kind of the importance of compassion and, and understanding.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: My grandfather taught me that you know the janitor matters just as much as the CEO. And mm-hmm.
2: so when I was in
1: school, I made sure to learn all of the lunch ladies' names because they were the ones with access to food. Um, My grandmother, she was uh, she was she was a party animal. She was the life of everything. But, you know, in anything she did, she always had God. And and so did my grandfather. And so it's not one person. And there's more than those four people. But Mm -hmm. those four people certainly probably are my Mount Rushmore. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I have to start ranking the presidents, I can't do that. But uh, they're all involved, you know. (laughs) (laughs) they're they're all involved and and those are probably the four most influential people and then might be a selfish answer but I think you have to say yourself um yeah you influence yourself in your own actions you know my mom taught me my grandma taught her uh, you can choose to be happy when you wake up or you can choose to make it a miserable day and and you can doesn't matter what circumstance you're in you can choose to smile or not and so I try to Try to remember that at some point of the day when stuff gets hard. Um, mm-hmm. One thing I have developed in my own brain when life is tough is that I try to imagine I'm, I'm on a beach because I'm a coast guy. I like fishing. So I'm on a beach and it's a beautiful white beach like they have in Florida. We don't have those over here unless we pump the sand in. And I'm <laughs> holding a single piece, a uh, single grain of sand. And that's Mm -hmm. whatever moment I'm dealing with right then. And that beach in front of me is all those moments in my life that have mattered. And I say, do I want this pebble on my sand beach or not? If Mm -hmm. I don't, I try to just let it go. Doesn't always work, but it's been good to me the last couple of years.
0: What a great analogy. Yeah.
1: I I made that up. I'm patenting that, trademarking it, everything.
0: (laughs) Yeah, do it. I love that. Um, Tell us a bit about your firm right now. Where can people find you? And um, what kind of cases do you guys specialize in?
1: We specialize in workers' compensation and federal longshore claims, the, the guys that are working on ships, building carriers and things like that. We do a lot of criminal defense as well, federal and state in Mississippi and Alabama. We do all these in, in Mississippi and Alabama. Um, okay. We're actually in the process of doing some paperwork to get a Louisiana lawyer with us as well. It's Maybe. just the three stooges from law school, but we're doing it our way. You know, that's all that matters. And then uh, we do some personal injury stuff. Um, we branch out. We've got like some breach of contracts here and there and some other things. But mainly, I'd say 80% of our practice is comp and longshore. And that's, that's really what we want to do. Um, we file petitions and file complaints pretty quickly. We litigate hard, but, you know, we're willing to settle a claim when it's time. But if it's not, it's okay to go to trial. It's, I'm going to go home at the end of it. Um, it's no skin off my back if we win or lose. I did immigration law while uh, President Trump was in office. Whether you liked him or not, we all know how that went for immigration deportations. And I'll go get my teeth kicked in again. Uh, you know, I'm not afraid to go fight the battle. We got to. That's
2: mm-hmm. my
1: role. My role is to deliver what you want. And I can only give you my legal advice. I break it down to legal and life advice. Hey, look, this is my legal advice. As an aside, here's my life advice. You can tell me to go to hell on both accords and I'll go do what you want me to. I'll jump off the cliff with you.
0: Not literally, though.
1: (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Back in the day, I would. If you want to go jump off a cliff, I'll go jump off the cliff. But um, I'm a little slower moving now. I don't do quite as many wild things as I once did.
2: Sure. Yeah.
0: Um, what's your firm? What's your current firm called?
1: So it's Barlow and Golf, G-O-F-F. Um, if we add the other guy in Louisiana, we'll have to have some subsidiary firm. But it's Barlow and Golf, PLLC. We're in mainly the Gulf Coast region for like Mobile, Alabama, Biloxi, all the way to Long Beach. And then Marshall heads up our Jackson-Brandon area um we've got clients all the way through South Haven and so we're looking at probably swearing into Tennessee next oh, since cool. it's right there on the border and Arkansas and then trying to find a couple more of those stooges that went to school with us and bringing them into our little thing
0: I love that keeping it in the fam
1: that's perfect. that's right
0: yeah. it's our version
1: of Costa Nostra
0: Cool. Yeah. Um, Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure. Such a good conversation. And thank you for just being so vulnerable with us and sharing your story. So um, with that being said, you guys, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, don't forget to subscribe. If you guys found value from this podcast, please share. It goes a long way in helping out the podcast. And uh, remember that you can find our my podcast on our YouTube channel, Purpose Driven Law, iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Take care and be blessed. Bye.